Morning, everyone. Um, coming to you from Sydney, first day of winter here. Feeling it a little bit, although it's probably 20 degrees Celsius. So for anyone joining us from North America um, who suffer severe winters, I know that's quite laughable. We're just waiting for Dan to join us, but in the meantime, I will go ahead and introduce this webinar today. <clears throat> so Mobius was fortunate enough to be part of the Tendine mitral valve clinical trial first in human early feasibility that was expanded into a fully blown pivotal study across the globe. Uh, back in, we started this project back in 2014 and along the way, obviously you become close friends with those that you work with and uh, a highly strategic person in the Tendine story back then was Dan Manns. Uh, we're just waiting for Dan to join us. He's just having a couple of technical issues, but um, he'll be on momentarily. I'll just tell you a little bit about Mobius Medical whilst we're waiting. <clears throat> so many of you will know, I can see from the attendees, I know lots of you already, um, but we're based in North Sydney headquarters with an office in Melbourne and with staff throughout Australia and both islands of New Zealand. So we provide a full service clinical uh, trial management and electronic data capture and data management service. Uh, we've got an ISO 9001 QMS, which is around about 0.7 years, I think, of surveillance over that. Um, and we work in all phases of therapeutic goods. So from first in human medical devices and phase one pharmaceutical to right through to the post-market situations. Uh, through our networks, we have medical monitors, uh, biostatisticians and study coordinators uh, along with medical writing and Mobius as a company in Australia, a legal entity that acts as local legal sponsor for our overseas clients, which is a mandatory requirement when running clinical trials in Australia to have that Australian entity act as the, legal, the local legal sponsor. Have we got Dan on? Good morning. Good morning, welcome. Thank you. So it gives me the greatest pleasure to introduce you now to Dan Manns, who's the executive partner and co-founder of Voyager Medical in his present role. Um, and obviously the, the story that we're telling today is from his days as VP of clinical development at Tendine Holdings. And that was from 2012 through to 2017. And we've got Dan's LinkedIn um, URL there for anybody that would like to stalk Dan after the call. <laughs> so Dan, with no further ado, I'm going to hand over to you to take us through what was the most successful protocol design I must admit I've ever worked on to date. Uh, but first of all, why don't you tell everybody a little bit about the valve and how it works um, and I'll show you the slides along the way. Okay, very much. Thank you very much, Suzanne. I uh, also see some attendees here who might have to help answer some questions. I know at least one was involved at Tendine who worked with me there. So hello to you, Anne, and uh, forgive me if I refer any questions your way. Uh, but so yeah, this is, this is a depiction of the methods used to implant the Tendine valve. And Suze, I have to 
thank you for saying this was a successful study design, and in many ways, I guess it was. Um, happy to talk through those today, of course, but I, I really need to give credit to the R&D team who developed an amazing product shown here. So the first thing we do is pass a balloon and, and make sure that the trajectory for the implant is free of entanglement in the chordae tendinae. Then uh, we leave a wire behind and follow that wire with the apparatus shown here. Um, it's deployed in, in this picture here and is repositionable. So once it's in place, if the performance isn't adequate, it's possible to go ahead and, and move it around. This is a tethered device. So the mechanism for anchoring is shown here. The tether comes through the, the left ventricular wall and then a button is fastened to the end of that tether. Uh, there's a tightening procedure that you go through to make sure that the valve is not only seated, but remains seated throughout the cardiac cycle. So there are no leaks that develop as the heart uh, cycles. Right, so this is really credit to um, the Mobius team. We simultaneously submitted package um, information for study approval to Mobius and uh, the US for uh, an EFS um, IDE approval and to the uh, competent authority in Germany. <laughs> and by far the fastest approval that we received was from the Australian um, ATREC. Uh, allowing us through the TGI or the CTM pathway to initiate our studies there at several institutions. And uh, I'll describe here what is essentially the protocol that remained in place from the first implant all the way through enrollment of the cohort needed to obtain CE mark. So I think that may be the the best element of the study design. It was set up as a first in human feasibility study. Our intention was to gain early insights to coin a phrase or to borrow a phrase coined by the FDA in their EFS guidance document and then moved on because of the success of the valve to a much larger um, investigation which we'll uh, show you as as the um, slides progress here. Started out with 20 sites at up to five or sorry 20 patients at up to five sites then moved along really each of these protocol revisions is going to have a similar theme increasing the geographies, increasing the number of patients, increasing the uh, number of sites who are involved. We did learn some lessons along the way. I think one of the, the really important concepts that I would share in designing a first in human study is to the extent that you're able with the approving body, wherever it might be, to maintain flexibility in your trial design for an uh, first in human study, you ought to do it because you learn so much in each of those, those cases as you're just starting out for you to be very prescriptive, for example, in your instructions for use documentation around the, the nature of each step in the procedure is a mistake. Because if you, if you describe something very precisely there and then you learn after a case or two, it needs to change to go through a whole protocol revision and uh, you know, approval of, of the necessary bodies for that revision. It takes a long time and you'd have to do one almost between every every case at least we would have had to in this study because we were learning so much so next protocol again expanded uh really the the, the geographies the sites the patient limits um, and indicated that we would intend 
to uh, to use this in a broader way than just to gener generate initial insights. Uh, thinking we might at that point have a chance to use this first in human study to generate enough information to obtain the CE mark. And in doing that, of course, we put together performance hypotheses that would be appropriate for, uh, for the clinical evidence needed to get the mark. Uh, similar updates here. Uh, <clears throat> trying to think of what's worthy of pointing out. Probably you just reading the bullets is, is adequate. Um, you know, when we first set out to do this study, we had a very preliminary device design. We thought we would do a couple of implants. Uh, we had no idea that we would need to incorporate some sort of a long-term follow-up. So as it became clear that we were going to extend this beyond a very short-term evaluation, we need to incorporate that element as well. So we actually were able to, uh, to obtain, or I should say Abbott was able, by the time uh, the CE mark application went in, it, we had been owned by Abbott for some time. Uh, still after the data set was collected in order to obtain the CE mark, there was continued follow-up. I, I think it's safe to say that the longest term data set in transcatheter mitral valves comes from this study now as they continue follow-up. There, you may know there are over 60 companies pursuing this space. There had never been a transcatheter valve applied to the mitral um, location. Uh, there were four or five who got to human study and there is a huge, huge problem with safety in the majority of, of those uh, products, clinical studies. So again, we weren't first to implant, first to market here, uh, as discussed on this slide, but fortunately, we were able to learn lessons from some of those fast starters who went before us uh, that allowed us to, uh, to have a different safety profile and conti continue the study as uh, we've already discussed. Uh, we did make some changes. There were guidelines that came out um, building off of the, uh, the TAVI Academic Research Consortium applied to, to the mitral valve. So as those things became available, as the body of research increased, of course, we had to follow that with our studies as well. So here's a, a rough outline of, of the timeline. Uh, what's not listed here is we did have a first in human evaluation and a much less well-developed medical infrastructure down in Paraguay, um, which was our, our first experience with implanting the valve in a beating heart, human heart. Uh, but then our first, I would say, legitimate patient usage, because uh, particularly a, a chronic implant, because the Paraguay experience was, was just a temporary implant and explant. Uh, on way for the patient on way to an open chest procedure. So I felt like it was important to do that from, uh, from an ethical standpoint um, and did learn quite a bit that was rolled into, into the manner in which we would use the valve in the first chronic implant, which occurred in Australia in 2014. So from then um, to, <laughs> actually it's 2015, uh, we were able to it's not June of 18, sorry, it's June of 15, that's a typo. Sorry, Suze. Um, so from, from November of 14 to June of 15, we're able to implant eight patients. And based on that, Abbott made a, an offer to acquire the company, which is 
extraordinary, right? After eight patients that they would do that. Uh, that definitive agreement was signed in June uh, and then executed or closed um, in about six months, I guess it was. Uh, no, even less than that, three months in September. So it was a huge success from that point of view. Of course, the shareholders loved it. I think the first person, the angel who put money in had a 40 times return in like a five year period. So it was pretty exciting to be to be a part of that success. And I think the fact that we did a single protocol that we, we didn't have to make a lot of revisions or have a lot of pauses with the design updates, which is so typical, right? In a startup company where the device just doesn't work as well as the 10 valve did out of the gate. So again, kudos to the R&D team for that. You see some dates here around when data were published and uh, when we started or when Abbott started the the pivotal trial for the device when CE Mark was awarded and so forth. As I mentioned, I believe still today, this is the largest and most long-term data set for transcatheter mitral implants. Uh, so, and the vast majority really based on this first in human study. So Mobius asked me to just provide some commentary around these three questions. I have to say most of this is pretty intuitive probably, but I can testify to the truth of these statements. We found it really terrific to be able to, to go to Australia. As one of the slides mentioned, it was very quick for us to get the, um, the, the study approved so we could start it. Um, and, and the clinical trial notification pathway is, is really quite efficient when I compare uh, the documentation reviewed and required by the ATRAC, which is the primary review, reviewing body under CTN, uh, to what we had, say, with the B Farm in Germany, which is their competent authority, or the or the U.S., which was even under the EFS program. I have to commend the the FDA for that program as well. Super, super effective and almost puts first in human studies on par with Australia in terms of being able to do things quickly. But I think they're still not there, to be honest. And, and we had an extraordinary review team at the FDA that made the EFS pathway quicker than I think other, other companies have experienced. So even with the, the review team we had, we were able to move much more quickly in Australia. So why single protocol? Uh, you know, we, we were fortunate, again, as the device was performing so well and uh, we had appropriate data collection for, for long-term uh, follow-up and, and I'd say regulatory authority approvals, it was terrific to just keep rolling. You know, all we had to do was increase this, the center number, uh, decrease, increase the geographies, add some stats here and there, and basically didn't have to submit a, you know, ground up sort of application for next phase studies. So we didn't plan it this way. You know, it was our good fortune to be able to do that. And if I were to do it again, I would, I would try to plan it that way. If there's anything you've got coming up like this, I would, I would recommend it. Uh, of course, it's hard to know whether it's gonna succeed. Again, really requires that your device that enters the first in human study continues to be the device that you want to carry forward without major modification because obviously the modification you all probably know itself would require uh, submissions to regulatory authorities. So if you're going to do that anyways, you may tweak the study design a bit from, uh, from what you started with. 
The other thing, as I mentioned, we have this large data set now coming largely from the study. Uh, if you have multiple studies, you have to justify the pooling, right? To, uh, to do not exactly um, um, a full, what's the word I'm looking for? You know, when you combine lots of studies into a publication, it's a lot easier if it's coming from a single study to report on that data set without justifying the, the need to, uh, to do so. So I think that's it. The final points probably made a couple times. Dan, thank you. I think um, what you said about <clears throat> not planning this from the outset is sort of crucial to anybody that's listening to us that, you know, based on the experience that we had in this design, it would certainly be worthwhile, I think, for anybody in a similar space, you know, with an implantable device like this, that you're extremely confident from the outset of the design um, and there aren't going to be any major modifications to the actual device, you know, uh, or the system, that if it's in your sort of head at the outset to have a protocol that's able to be amended along the way to, you know, lengthen the, the follow-up, um, alter the stats accordingly as we go. Ethics committees in, <clears throat> excuse me, in Australia, this is testament to that. We'll look at those data. We'll look at the updated investigators brochure and the, you know, the amendments to the protocol favorably because there's, there's only advantages to be had, I guess, in those early patients remaining on the study longer term. So whilst this was fortuitous for, you know, for you that this happened this way, I think planning a protocol like this in the future, and I mean, it's, there's nothing lost, right? Right. In, in starting, you don't first know that your device will justify it, right? You don't know that you won't have major revisions to your point, but if exactly. you don't have a protocol that's set to expand, should you be so fortunate as to have a successful device coming out of the gates, then you'll regret it. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So thank you so much, Dan. That was a, a succinct and extremely informative presentation. We've got 10 minutes left, which is a perfect amount of time to open the floor to ask if anybody's got any questions. We don't have a huge amount of attendees, so I think it would be manageable if anybody does have a question to for Richard to unmute you and let's have a conversation. So why don't you raise your hand or pop something in the um, Q&A, the chat box, if you'd like to ask Dan anything about this. Uh, so while we wait for, for some questions to come up, um, I just had a question, were there any pitfalls of, um, of using Australia for, for any of the first in, hum, first in human data, um, uh, especially with the FDA, were they uh, happy to receive the data from Australia? I would say the only pitfall I can think of is the coordination over time zones and distance. Obviously, it's, it's expensive uh, to travel, to be on site, and I always like that. I think most sponsors do like to be in, um, you know, present in the centers so they can learn the lessons, they can build the relationships with the site. So that's a bit of a pitfall. But in terms of being able to use the data for the FDA, you know, they were, they were absolutely amenable. Of course, their concern is that you've run the study according to how their regulation would require you to do so, um, you know, essentially 
according to Harmonize GCP. Um, the other thing that they would like to see is, um, is that the data is coming from a representative population. This is more important when you're applying for say a market approval based on clinical data collected elsewhere, but to use the, the data um, as a pre prelude to a pivotal trial, for example, uh, they look at, at Australia in our experience as a very, fa very favorably. And part of that is because of not only that there's infrastructure developing as Mobius has described around clinical research of medical devices, but also it is a very representative healthcare infrastructure, right? You can go, you can go to Paraguay, doesn't have nearly the, um, the developed infrastructure and certainly uh, the medical infrastructure. It doesn't have the research infrastructure development, but developed, but more importantly, the healthcare administrator infrastructure lacks. We actually had to bring our own physicians in to make sure that the patients had excellent care, not only with the surgical procedure, but also with the preparation of the patients going into the procedure and the post-op follow-up care. So another great advantage, it was in the slide, but I didn't highlight it, should have, of going to Australia is you really have world-class physicians. They're well-trained on a global scale um, and they work in institutions with similar patient uh, pathways. Uh, so, so doing the study there can be uh, a foreshadowing, if you will, of what you might experience in other geographies like the US or the EU. Um, so yeah, it's really, it's easy to count on the physicians to do a good job caring for the patients. Also in a first demand study, of course, it's, it's important as well to learn lessons as thoroughly as you can. If you're working with folks like we were able to do, they are the kind of people that are amenable to early stage research. They're willing to deal with an imperfect product. They're also creative because they've been involved in first in human studies of other devices. So they understand you have to troubleshoot and how to learn the lessons that are important for a sponsor to learn. Uh, yeah, so, so really good reasons to go there for your own learning sake, but also in terms of your question, Richard, uh, a great place to build the data set that FDA will, will consider valid. Great, thanks Dan. We do have a few questions here now. So uh, we have one from Emily. Um, she's asking, uh, how did you determine the protocol amendments? Uh, these, these are things like adding sites, regions, and, and, and patients. Um, and uh, was this through through uh, guidance with Mobius? Um, or, you know, how was that um, consultation done? Yeah, much of it was done on, on the basis of business needs. You know, for, for a small, small company to be able to essentially experience the validation of, of getting the CE mark or even FDA approval for a clinical trial puts the company in a certain favorable light. In fact, one of the serious considerations we had about going to Paraguay is we didn't want people to think we were doing things on the cheap or weren't being rigorous about our clinical research. Just the opposite happens when you go to Australia or you start to expand throughout the globe. You know, this isn't just a fluke that one or two physicians in Australia are able to manage this thing. In fact, it's been able to expand to geographies, and to additional sites. So again, some of that was based more on a business need to provide validation, if you will, of the company's products. 
and then off, obviously we want to we want to increase the enrollment rates and um, the lessons we can learn from various users and so forth. Turns out we didn't need many patients in order to get to our exit, at least. But uh, yeah, that's oftentimes, as I'm sure all of you have experienced, motivation for expansion is just to get more sites. So you've got a bigger engine to get those patients in and get the data set you need developed. Uh, absolutely. Um, we've also got a question from uh, from Pablo. Uh, what was the duration uh, for each of the uh, protocol changes to be approved? Um, can we remember uh, all that time ago? <laughs> no, yeah, not the, not the number of days or even probably within a month or two, I could tell you. The amendments were very quick. I would say they were driven more by the ethics committee uh, schedules in Australia than there were actually the review itself. You know, of course, not all the ethics committees meet as frequently as you might like. So it can be, uh, you know, at least a couple of weeks before or after you submit the application before they even consider it. But it was, it was a matter of weeks, not months, for these um, revisions that weren't substantial. Suze, you might even have the data on that. I do, not, not in my head. Otherwise, I, yeah. I, yeah, I would need to get out more. But <laughs> sure. but I was impressed was, by how much you were able to dig out from Yeah, no, it's easy for me to, to dig out and share that um, you know, offline, for sure. But you're right, it was depending on the depending on the amendment that we you know proposed to the ethics committee it was it, some of them were seen sort of outside of the committee because they weren't seen as substantial changes but um, it, it's certainly two to you know two to six weeks would be the maximum for an amendment to be submitted and approved here you know uh, and of course once that's done then the individual hospital governance take that approval and you know, rubber stamp it essentially so that that, that new protocol revision can be implemented at, at their particular institution. And then of course, from the TGA perspective with the clinical trial notification, that's um, once that's notified, it's a day or two for that to, to roll through the actual regulatory authority, because as I said, it's, it's simple notification and update of, of perhaps the study title and the number of participants and countries involved. That's really all you need to tell TGA. And then there's another question from Pablo in follow-up. So the data from Australia was accepted by the FDA. How do you approach the differences in population profiles? Yeah, so the, the majority of the patients that were enrolled were not indigenous peoples from, uh, from Australia. So I think the genetics and, and you know, the, uh, uh, just the ethnicity obviously is less important, but the genetics were similar enough that that question didn't even come up from the FDA. Uh, I think there were two elements to your question. One was justifying the differences in population. It wasn't asked. Um, what was the other element to the question from Pablo? This was it accepted. Oh yeah. So the data was was used, uh, but it was not. It was not used. I mean, they're still seeking their PMA approval, so it would have been used more in terms of being provided in annual reports participating sites in the U.S. and that kind of thing. Uh, so in the, the rigor that they would have applied to the data is obviously less than, uh, than what would be applied if we were seeking a market approval. But I don't know if the Mobius team can comment on this. I would not expect that the agency would have a problem 
accepting Australian data. Many of us have used uh, European data in FDA market approvals. And I would say my experience, Australia is more US-like than Europe is in terms of patient referral pathways, patient care, both preoperatively and postoperatively. Um, I guess the genetics are quite more similar probably from Europe to, uh, to the US than Australia. But yeah, I, I am confident that they would accept, although we didn't need it in this case, Australian data as part of a, a PMA application. And Pablo's finished by saying an offer for acquisition during the study is amazing. Congratulations to the teams involved. And it really was. It was a you know, huge success story for everyone involved. So it's a minute to 8.30 Sydney time. So we're bang on time. If I don't think there are any more questions. So um, Dan, thank you so very much. That was extremely insightful and uh, really appreciate you joining us today. You're welcome. I hope it was helpful. Terrific. Thank you. Thanks everyone for attending. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.